civilians take flight, and shedding light on galactic arcs. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A crew of four civilians is set to take flight to low Earth orbit next month, flying in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. The mission, bankrolled by billionaire Jarek Isaacman, will raise money for St. Jude and will be broadcast in near real time on Netflix. It's a new chapter in spaceflight history, so how did we get here? Axios space reporter Miriam Kramer explores the mission's origin and purpose in a new podcast for Axios. We'll speak with her about her reporting and what's ahead for the Inspiration4 crew. Then, earlier this summer, scientists observed a giant arc of galaxies, stretching billion light years into the distant universe. Some say this finding has the potential to change the foundations of cosmology and the standard model of the universe. But is that really the case? Well, we'll speak with our panel of expert physicists from UCF, including cosmologist Jim Cooney, about the findings and the meaning behind the discovery. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Next month, four civilians will take flight and head to space, riding SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule on a Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center on a three-day mission to low Earth orbit and back. It's the first all-civilian mission to head to space and marks a new chapter in space flight history. Axios space reporter Miriam Kramer is following the mission and producing a new podcast docuseries from Axios about the flight. To talk more about the Inspiration4 mission and Axios's new season of the How It Happened podcast, we're joined by reporter and host Miriam Kramer. Miriam, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So in the prologue of the show, you said... This is a very complicated time in space, uh, and I, I think you're right. <laughs> so set, set the stage. What What's happening now in, in space, particularly commercial space and space tourism? Yeah, I mean, a lot, right? Like, I mean, just this summer, there were, you know, these two suborbital flights with Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. Um, and it just, I was in many ways just like shocked by the amount of attention that was paid to these flights, like not to say that they aren't worthy of attention, but just, I, I mean, everyone had a take. It was pretty amazing, actually, as someone who's been on the beat for a while to kind of see the world suddenly turn their eyes to to private spaceflight um, and start asking like tough questions about it and, and sort of things that I think, you know, space reporters and others who have been following the field for a long time have been asking themselves for a while. But um, to sort of see that breakthrough in in a wider way, just personally, was was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Good and bad takes, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of both. I would say um, a lot of people like dropping into my mentions to sort of say how they don't want Jeff Bezos to come back, <laughs> or like wishing for a rocket explosion or something like that. And I was like, this is uh, that's that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I mean, that definitely put commercial space, you know, front and center to the general public. But, you know, things like these missions have been in the works for years. Um, and, and your podcast covers Inspiration4, which will be the first all-civilian. Is that what we're calling it? What's the what's the correct terminology <laughs> to call this mission? Yeah, I think we're call- – I think I'm still going with all-civilian. Okay. Uh, I think it's the most descriptive. Uh, I've heard sort of amateur and um, – 
I think we're going to probably end up making the the argument that they're not really amateurs. <laughs> they might be rookies, but but by the time they launch, they're, they're certainly not going to be untrained. Well, I will follow your guidance, and I'm going to call it the first all-civilian mission as well. Um, let's talk about how, how did this flight come to be? Um, you know, you, you spoke about... You know, these suborbital commercial space flights, this will be the first orbital space tourism flight. How do we get to this moment? Yeah, I mean, so this this flight, uh, Inspiration4, was the brainchild of a billionaire named Jared Isaacman. Uh, and he's serving as the commander on the mission, so he'll be on the flight. Uh, but instead of picking sort of three of his buddies or, you know, just pals to go with him to space... Uh, he decided that he was going to basically open it up. And um, two seats were actually sort of chosen through a somewhat, I would say, random means. Um, one was like truly random. It was a raffle. <laughs> uh, name out of a hat, golden ticket given to the winner kind of thing. Um, and the other seat uh, that sort of falls into this category was was one through a Shark Tank style competition for entrepreneurs who basically made the case for why they should get to go to space on this mission. Um, and then the the fourth seat was was picked actually by St. Jude, who is kind of, uh, it was picked by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, and they are the beneficiary of this mission uh, in many ways. Like Jared is, is working to raise $200 million for the hospital. So there's, there's a lot here that's not just... Um, uh, to be frank, r- r- rich white guys going to space. <laughs> and that's kind of the point of this, right, is to, you know, have more than just those rich billionaires that can that can pay for their seats, right? This is to open up space for all. Yeah, that's the way they're seeing it. I mean, it's the the idea is, you know, when you you being whoever uh, looks at this mission, they can find someone to relate to in some way. I mean, like, uh, the folks that are flying to space are are in many ways very ordinary. You know, Chris Ambrosky, the guy who got the golden ticket uh, from the raffle, it is like a family man, an engineer. He, you know, spends time with his his daughters and his wife. Like that's what he loves to talk about. Um, Haley Haley Arsenault, who got her seat through St. Jude, uh, will be the first person with a prosthesis in space. So, I, I mean, and then uh, Cyan Proctor had the dream of becoming a NASA astronaut, made it to sort of a final round uh, at one point with NASA, and wasn't selected to go. So this is the way that she's getting to go to space is through private companies. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of really relatable aspects of this crew that for me personally, I'm, I've just been really fascinated by for months now. Mm-hmm. The mission itself, though, it seemed to come together quite quickly um, with with the announcement of Jared Isaacman taking this on, and then announcing Haley, and then and then the the two, you know, random um, winners of those seats. But had had this always kind of been in place at SpaceX to offer up Crew Dragon to folks who want to buy seats to space? I think so. I mean, SpaceX has always wanted to have this, you know, human spaceflight program that was going to extend past just NASA. And I think that they were looking for the right opportunity to kind of stand it up. And in many ways, Inspiration4 is that 
right opportunity for them. So, you know, I mean, SpaceX, like, they have this ultimate goal of making life interplanetary, of getting hundreds of people to Mars. So in order to do that, you have to work out the kinks of these systems. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that is figuring out how to fly and train ordinary people, because you can't just fly professional astronauts if you want to build a city on Mars. Mm-hmm. You've had the chance to follow these four during their training and, and leading up to this flight. Um, what has that training been like? Can you can you take us inside to what, what this crew of four goes through? How do you train a civilian crew? And, and how have they kind of reacted to it um how are they doing yeah i mean so they're they're uh, extremely busy (laughs) all the time (laughs) um yeah i mean i've been lucky to talk to three of the four of them every uh almost every week since they were uh, announced uh, and selected um and I can tell you this is not like some simple thing that you slot into your everyday life uh they are going back and forth to Hawthorne, SpaceX's headquarters and other training sites around the country to, you know, learn the ins and outs of Dragon. They recently did a 30-hour simulation of the mission, um, which by all accounts was was very intense, but also very fun. Uh, it sounds like Jared really wanted everyone to kind of have the astronaut experience in a lot of ways. It's like, this is a lot of what professional astronauts do do get trained on when they fly in the Dragon, um, just on an incredibly accelerated timescale. So they're kind of drinking from a fire hose. And it sounds like in many ways it has sort of taken over their lives, which I guess is to be expected for a space mission. But it's been interesting to to watch it from close range. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you get the sense that seeing something like this happen in real time has got to make you think about future missions to the moon or Mars by civilians is almost impossible, right? I mean, you, you, they're doing a quick trip to low Earth orbit, and there's so much training and planning and learning that goes into this. I mean, does this kind of make the future of ordinary humans going farther, you know, not feasible? I mean, I don't know if I want to say it isn't feasible, I think what has been interesting is how committed they have been to this training. Um, Like, I've spoken to them for months and, like, you know, they might occasionally sort of say, like, oh, you know, it's tough. Like, I haven't seen the family in a minute or whatever. But, like, they are in for this. So when you find the right, you know, group of people to take this on, I think that uh, that training becomes you know, possible. That said, like something like Mars, something like the moon, I mean, we are a long way from being able to send, you know, tourist flights to those destinations. And I think that... You're telling me that's not the next, the next, uh, (laughs) the next mission's not going to Mars, William? Certainly not the next immediate mission. (laughs) But, you know, you've got like, this is a really interesting transitional period. That's kind of the way I've been thinking about it. Like, they're just at the, just like SpaceX is just dipping their toe into what it means to actually send civilians to space. Um, and, you know, they want to make it like air travel. But right now, I mean, it's it's nowhere near that. So there's going to be a long line of steps to actually get to the point where normal people can really see themselves flying to space. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the crew is dedicated and they have had to make some sacrifices, you know, missing time with their family and such. Um, but you and I both know there is a lot of risk in these missions. 
Um, and, and I'm wondering if you've had the chance to talk to this crew and, and even their family. And do they understand the risks of this mission? And, and how are they grappling with that? Yeah, um, I have been lucky enough to talk to them about this and to talk to some of their family members about it. And I think that they understand the risks. I feel like they think that SpaceX has prepared them well. Um, they have been going through all of these simulations and going through everything that could possibly go wrong. So they feel at least prepared to, you know, take over Dragon if they need to. They feel ready to fly to space. And I think that part of getting ready is understanding those risks for them. As for their families, I do think that it's just hard. I mean, it must be the most nerve wracking thing in the world to like watch a loved one blast off for space on a rocket. I mean, it's funny, like getting to know these folks, I know them better than I've known any space crew before them. So I actually get really nervous, like thinking about the launch. Not that I think anything bad is going to happen, but it's just, it's a high risk activity. Uh, And I, you know, I'm not a loved one. Like I'm a journalist who's just been following them, but it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think, I think I, it's really hard to imagine the position that, you know, like, Chris's wife will be in when she's watching them fly. And it seems like, you know, the general public is going to have a close relationship with this crew because of the publicity they're doing and because of, you know, why they're doing the mission in the first place and having this being, you know, broadcast on Netflix. Like we really are going to be closer to these astronauts than ever before. And I think that's something really cool to think about, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's by design, right? Like the first all civilian crew, like they're just like us. Like that's that's the message of this mission. And uh, I, I think that, that folks are really starting to tune into that now, especially just a few weeks uh, before launch. Uh, Miriam, I listened to, to the prologue of, of the podcast and there was there was a moment in it where I became very, very jealous of you is when you were describing seeing the spacecraft. And I was like, oh, what I would do to to, to be there with you. <laughs> So you got to tell me, tell me about it. What did it look like? It's got this really cool cupola installed. Oh my gosh. Uh, tell us all about it. Yeah. So what I actually got to see when I was at SpaceX w- was the cupola. The The dragon itself, I think, was already in Florida. So I didn't get to see that. But we were walking past a clean room on sort of like a little tour of the facility. Uh, and I looked over and I was just like, hey, what are, what's that? <laughs> Is that it? Like, is, is that, that it? what I think it is? <laughs> and it was like, and yeah, it was like these two glass domes that were just sort of sitting in the front of this clean room. And it, they, I was just like, oh my God, like that's, that's the cupola. Like that's the much, much heard about window that all of us, you know, nerds were, were hoping to see. <laughs> um, so that was really neat. Like it was because the cupola for me is almost like a, like a character in this story, like in the story of inspiration for. Um, because like yeah I mean it's never flown in space before and it's a window and it's like a continuous bubble window (laughs) in space like that's it's it's so funny it's like it's so risky and it's so SpaceX and they are so confident like that it's just gonna work fine and like in a lot of ways it sounds like it will but it's just it's this very funny you know it it just is a perfect example of why this mission is different from other missions. Like it's this aesthetic play 
to have this this incredible window on top of their capsule. Mm-hmm. And you said you saw two. Does that mean there could be uh, <laughs> more of these uh, installed for future flights? I think that they might be planning on that. But the one, the the two that I saw, one of them I think was a test article. So they were going to like put it through its paces basically to make sure it was going to, you know, hold up to the pressure of going to space. They're not secretly saving it for an all-journalist uh, trip to space, are they? You know, I should ask next time to be like, so like, can I, is that for us? Like, can we go? Well, Miriam Kramer is the space reporter at Axios, and she hosts the next season of How It Happened. You can get the first episode exploring this mission, Inspiration4, starting August 31st on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Miriam, thanks again for, for coming back on. This was a great conversation. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come, does a discovery of a giant arc of galaxies change the way we understand our universe? Our experts weigh in. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Earlier this summer, scientists observed a giant arc of galaxies stretching 3 billion light years in the distant universe. Some say this finding has the potential to change the foundation of cosmology and the standard model of our universe. But is that really the case? Well, we'll chat with our panel of expert physicists from UCF and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell, about those findings and the meaning behind that discovery. Jim Cooney begins our conversation. So, on the very largest scales in the universe... We have always thought that the, universe, the, the the galaxies would be kind of randomly sprinkled around. The universe should be, on its biggest scales, fancy words, homogeneous and isotropic, basically just means the same everywhere. This arc of galaxies is hinting that maybe that's not true. An arc of galaxies just means we took a look at the distribution of galaxies and found that there's this like elongated string, kind of like a, a smiley face, yeah. uh, if you look at the picture, of galaxies arranged in this way when they should be randomly sprinkled they don't seem to be quite randomly sprinkled so if that's you squint yeah yeah it's, it's yeah it's not necessarily it's, it's, obvious to the naked eye but it's statistically it's only the smile of the smiley face and there's a whole bunch of other it's a it's got a lot of other things going on on that face mm-hmm. too now cosmologist alexa lopez said the finding would quote if it's if it's confirmed would quote overturn cosmology as we know it our standard oh, model not no. to put it heavily kind of falls through Jim what, is, what does that mean what is so, that right this is why this is extremely exciting I, when I say exciting I mean I doubt that it's really going to overturn everything but the potential is there so like I just said that this assumption that the universe is the same everywhere on very large scales obviously that's not true on small scales right we live on a planet and if you go uh, a little ways off, there's empty space, right? So things aren't the same everywhere yeah. on small scales, but on large scales, when you average things on large scales, things should be the same everywhere. That, that's that, pretty foundational to our models of exactly. cosmology. In cosmology, that's called the cosmological principle, not very uh, inventively named, but uh, <laughs> that's a foundation of how all of our models are built on that foundation. If that foundation turns out to be unstable, we're in trouble, right? Uh so if you the one one of the uh, sort of nightmare scenarios uh for, oh, for some yes <laughs> it's not it's a it's an intellectual nightmare it's okay. not it's yeah. not anything bad happening <laughs> no it's just here. Okay. It, it's just a question of how well are we able to understand the universe you can as the universe is expanding you could imagine a point in time when the only thing inside the observable universe is the milky way galaxy 
And if we had come along at that point in time, everything else would have expanded beyond what we could see. Then you would conclude that the universe is a galaxy Mm -hmm. and that's what the universe looks like. And so the cosmological principle, if that's overturned, maybe hints at something along those lines going on. It's like, well, we're not in a representative time or we didn't catch things early enough or something weird happened before and we're in some sort of splotchy uh, chunk Mm -hmm. of the universe and the rest of the true overall structure of the universe is hidden from us somehow. That's – that is terrifying to think about, <laughs> actually. So it's scary. Neil deGrasse Tyson says this is one of his scariest thoughts. Yeah. Is, uh, the, but I think it's unlikely. He has a very I'm, easy life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if that's what you're waking up scared by, you're, that's true. But, uh, but I share uh, Jim's doubts that this will be uh, overturning cosmology. Yeah. I, we had spoke about this earlier before we were uh, – Recording this conversation, Josh, and, and you're skeptical of this, right? I mean, describe your skepticism. Well, the the human eye likes to find patterns. The human brain likes to find patterns. And so if you look at the picture of what they've got there, you can say, oh, it looks kind of like a smiley face in the middle there of this arc of galaxies. And then you say, well, a scientist, I'm going to test that to see is it truly non-random. If we expect things to be distributed randomly, then sometimes there will be two things next to each other. Mm-hmm other things that are farther apart. But the more things that are next to each other, the less likely that is to occur by sort of a random sprinkling of matter across the universe. And so then you have to do some mathematical statistical tests on this to say, all right, what are the odds that this particular sprinkling of galaxies that makes this sort of arc, uh, what are the odds that that came about just by sort of random chance? uh, Or is it so unlikely that it's saying something fundamental about the distribution of matter in the universe that isn't really Mm -hmm. uniform. And that's where you get into some really tricky stuff of Mm -hmm. designing your statistical tests, checking that there aren't some observational effects that went into the detection of this smiley face that prevented you from seeing a couple of other dots in your picture. And those other dots all of a sudden make the smile go away. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> this I mean this is a, a it's a, a big picture of the universe. How how is this captured? How do you how do you even look this wide view and find these patterns and look at these patterns? Yeah, so these days we have you know we have these uh instruments and uh, programs where we look at lots and lots and lots of things all at once, right? Like we said we're not uh, we said this a couple segments ago. Uh, weeks ago, I don't know when these things air, but uh, <laughs> they don't. They don't. Time is relative. In the future, Jim. we maybe yeah. said it. Uh, but th- we don't have to look at in- one thing anymore, right? It, you know, it's not like Galileo looking through his telescope at one object and then another one and another. We have these these instruments where we can look at thousands of of objects all at once, and so we we go out there and we look at the distribution of galaxies. Of course, galaxies themselves produce light. This particular uh, measurement wasn't produced by looking at the galaxies themselves, but by looking at uh, how the light from very distant background things called quasars, which are kind of progenitors of galaxies in the very early universe, uh, how the light from those things goes through the material between us and them. Hmm. Uh, some of that light gets absorbed and deflected, and we can detect that, and that tells us where the stuff in between is. So that gives us a map of what the universe looks like on very, very large scales. 
Yeah, and this was using, I think most of this data was from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which has been going right. for a long time. So it collects lots of data of and these broad swaths of the sky. Yep. Um, I actually don't know like what percentage of the sky sort of we were looking in for this. Well, but it's just three so. billion light years across. I mean, it's not it's not like covering the whole mm-hmm. hemisphere of the sky or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's a fair chunk of the sort of size of the observable universe, but they're distant. Uh, so it's it's an arc. Um, they they, <laughs> they medium excited. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, so I I'm even I'm even low Lesser, excited yeah. on this one. Um, I I mean, of course, it's an observation where you you make the observation, you run your test, you say, holy cow, we found something here that is potentially transformational to cosmology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you better pay attention to that, and you better follow it up. Right. Um, it comes down to. Are there some systematics in the observations that made it so that the map you're seeing is not exactly right? And then the interpretation. Is it truly a a significant indication of Mm non-homogeneity in the distribution of matter? And they mentioned they did a lot of statistical tests. And some of those statistical tests, it passed with the gold standard five sigma. Um, But of course, you have to really understand what is the statistical test that you're asking. And mm-hmm. the statistical test presupposes that everything else is well understood, that you – the statistical test says I'm going to take 100 galaxies and I'm going to plop them down and what are the chances I end up with a smiley face and it turns out to be one in a million. Mm-hmm. You're like, OK, it's, it's real. But that's not what your observation really is, right? Your observation has all these other things going on in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that, that's the scientific process, right? You Absolutely. have this finding and, and – mm-hmm. and... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, I don't. I don't know how much they're going to be able to look in other parts of the sky now and do some of these other surveys in other areas. Yeah, that was my next question. What what kind of follow up needs to happen other than kind of looking at the statistical methods here? I mean, is can there be more observations to? Yeah, for sure. Like Eddie said, we, this is only a small part of the the total sky, and so doing this same kind of observation in a whole bunch of different patches of sky is going to give you a better idea of whether this uh, is a real thing or not. Um, and like Josh said, so Josh is, is low excited. The, uh, the reason I'm excited is not that actually because I, I share Josh's skepticism, skepticism about this being a, a real thing. And, and, and to be fair, the authors of this paper aren't suggesting this is absolutely going to demolish cosmology. They're saying, look at this. This is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But like Josh said, the reason this is so fascinating is it's it's probably a low probability that it's real. But if it is, the consequences are enormous. Uh, I've built, you know, I, I teach classes all the time. I do research in cosmology and all of these things all are based on this one fundamental thing that the universe is homogeneous on its largest scales. If it's not, man, I got a lot of uh, you got retractions <laughs> to make. <laughs> Changing some syllabi. Huh? Yeah. That has a lot of, because that has a lot of implications for like how things form in the galaxy and where they are in the universe and where they form and how structures are able to come into existence and yeah. Yeah. evolve. And so... Yeah, I mean, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to, it's not everything we say and do is going to be wrong or anything like that. Eddie and I are totally fine because it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. affect, doesn't affect planetary science at all. So <laughs> we're golden. <laughs> right. <know. laughs> so something to keep an eye on, but also with a healthy dose of skepticism, right? Right. I mean, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right and on. this is something so transformational, requires 
definitely investigation and follow-up. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking with physicists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Josh Caldwell, Addy Dove, and Jim Cooney. Thank you all for being here. Great to be here. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from you, our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.